right. Before I get into the message today, let me open in prayer for us, okay? Father, I thank you that you are here with us. You say where two or more are gathered, there you are in their midst. Father, your word also says you're tabernacled on the praises of your people. And Lord, you also say that when we gather together to just function as the body of Christ, you promise your presence there. And so, Lord, I ask that right now, as we look into your scriptures, I pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts and that would, would draw us closer to you. And the Father, the result is that we're going to become a people who reflect the love of Jesus Christ even more. So, Father, would you do that and would you give us this gift of truth this morning by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. I remember several years ago, wow, I was, I was a young man. I, I had, I think at the time we had two children, only two children, and um, I was trying to cross four lanes of traffic, and this major road, 45 miles an hour, I was going from one development into another, and they had already put a light there, but they had the, the black... Um, cloth or whatever over it because they weren't it wasn't functioning yet I guess you know they just had to do some minor details in get, getting it set up I can remember it was a Saturday morning and it was drizzly and there I was with my family in the car um, and we were just waiting and I kept looking both ways kept looking both ways wow this is going to take forever and I looked to my left and I saw a car and I saw as it started to get into the left turn lane and as soon as I saw that I looked the other way and I started across but what I did not realize was there was another car behind it and it was going straight and we met each other in the middle of that highway at 45 miles an hour it plowed right into my door. When I went back to my car to get all the belongings because it was totaled, the guy looked at me and he said, ah, this is your car? You need to realize it's a miracle that you're alive. Nobody in my car was injured except the one who crashed into us. And this accident was my fault. I felt terrible. I wrestled with it all day. The, the church that we were a part of, many of them came over to our house. They cooked dinner for us. Um, my adrenaline was pumping. I was so glad that we were safe. Our car was totaled. And this young girl, um, I didn't have a chance to meet her. They just put her on a stretcher and off to the hospital. Now, in, in, because I got the ticket, I also got some information, and I gave her dad a call. And I introduced myself. I saw that he worked at the World Outreach Center, which is where I went to school at Regent University, and that's on the CBN uh, Christian Broadcasting Network campus where he worked. And I just thought, wow, this guy's probably Christian. I'm just going to give him a call. I'm going to apologize, and I want to see if I can come and visit the next day. I had no idea how she was doing. She found, I found out she was in neurological ICU. She had a cracked vertebrae in her neck. And my wife and I, we just prayed. And you can only imagine how I'm feeling. And, and he was so gracious. His name was Carl Witten. Carl and I talked for a little bit. He said, yeah, Mike, you know, after your church is done, just come on over. I did that, had a chance to meet Esther. Um, she was, I think at the time, she was 18 or 19, maybe 17, and late teenager, and completely my fault, I had a chance to apologize to her family and her, and we decided to keep in touch with this family. 
She was almost immediately released from neurological ICU. And then within five days, if I'm remembering correctly, she was released. We were in touch with them. And my wife said, look, you guys are coming. That was a Saturday. Thursday, she's coming home. Hey, can we bring you guys a meal? And so they said, yeah. And so we bring them a meal. And they said, hey, while you're here, just stay with us and, you know, eat the meal with us. So here we are. The very reason why we were there was because of my negligence. This accident is my fault. But what you have here is a picture of the body of Christ in reconciliation, believing that God is still in control. Miracles are already happening, right? And now here is the guy who's at fault, being in, bringing them a meal, now being invited to stay, and we had a great time. Now, within the year, at just this is just how it turned out. Within the year, as we were getting to know one another, they were in transition of a church, and they started coming to the church we were a part of. I worked with the teens, and their son got saved. Here's the interesting thing. We're pulling up, we're greeting them and hugging them, and you know, like we're old friends, right? That we're, Meredith is meeting them for the first time. And we're being ushered into their house, and the neighbor, their next door neighbor's out in the front yard and walks up to, to Media, the wife, and says, Media, who are these people? Because all week, people are bringing food to them. And she said, this is another one of your church people who's bringing you food, huh? And she says, well, actually, this is the family that was in the other car. You mean they were at fault? Well, yeah. And they're eating dinner with you? Yeah, that's just how this works. And the neighbor was so confused. But Jesus had an opportunity to give that neighbor, and maybe some of the other neighbors who were just peering through the windows, right? An opportunity to get a picture of the body of Christ at work. For the world to be able to look on and see something that reflected Jesus. Church, this is our goal. We are here, and our goal is to shine Jesus to this world. And, and you know what? We're going to fail. Sometimes, church, we're going to fail miserably. But in that failure, even then, we have the opportunity to make things right. If we've offended someone, to go and be reconciled. Isn't that amazing? And even in that reconciliation, we get to give we get to project a picture of the cross of reconciliation. That's what the cross is all about, reconciliation to God, but now the outworking is reconciliation with one another. This is a picture of the body of Christ. This is why we're going through these seven earmarks of a church, because these earmarks of a church seek to reflect Jesus Christ. Now, so far, we've looked at worship. We've looked at the word and prayer. And today, we're going to look at a word. It's translated in your Bible as fellowship or the fellowship. The Greek word is, you may, some of you may have heard it before. It's the word koinonia. It comes from the word koine or koinos, which means common. So when we're talking about fellowship or the fellowship, we're talking about a people who have things in common, and we're going to discover a little bit about what that even means today. One of the things we need to realize as we go through these earmarks is that our goal, 
such as in worship, and I touched on this, our goal is not to entertain, though I do hope that the worship sounds nice, that the melody is nice, that in that sense, and and I think they do a phenomenal job, and in that sense it's entertaining, but that's not our goal. Our goal is for us to worship God passionately. Church, the world looks on at these people called the church or the body of Christ, and can I just say many of them are hoping that there's going to be a difference, that maybe there's something that you have discovered that maybe I need to discover, but here's a sad truth. Many people in the world look on and they don't see a difference. And when they come into a church, they don't see a difference. But you see, these earmarks of the church are supposed to be things that distinguish us. Now, I hope that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable. This is in no way me trying to say the church looks down on the world in arrogance. And if you're not careful, that's the mentality that we can have. And God says, "Uh uh-uh. When Moses is interceding for the people, And they have just committed the sin of creating that golden calf. God, he's testing the heart of Moses. And he says, you know what? I'm going to send my angel with you, but I am not going to go with you. Because you know, if I go with you, if they do this, if they they sin, I'm going to just, I'm going to wipe them out. And I'm going to, I just want to start all over with you, Moses. I'll create a nation from you. And God, God is not seeking plan B in this. He's testing the heart of Moses. And Moses, as a true mediator, as a true lover of God and lover of God's people, steps into the gap. And he says, God, if your presence does not go with us, what else will distinguish me and your people from the rest of the world? And and that concept permeates and echoes throughout church history that Jesus Christ, his presence in the church, seen in many of these earmarks, this is what should distinguish us from the church. But you know what, church? And we're going to discover this. This is God working in us, okay? And can I just say this also? To my shame, that there are many in this world who have probably loved others better than me. And Christ is still being formed in my life. And so all I can say is, you know what? I am this work in progress. Jesus is still trying to conform me to his image. And all I can say is, the old Mike Curtis is vastly different than the new Mike Curtis. And and I hope that that new Mike Curtis is something that as Jesus shines through him, the world might look on and say there's something authentic about that. That when they come into our worship, they see a worship that's authentic. That when they may hear us pray, they hear a voice that is completely dependent upon the God that rescued them. That when the word goes out, the spirit coupled with that word, that truth, penetrates hearts, encourages them, infuses faith, draws them to Jesus. That there is an element there that wins the world, gets their attention. 
But if our focus is entertainment or if our focus, and these things are side elements. It's not that we get rid of them, church, but they can never be our focus. God has shown us, and we're going to, right now, we're going to look at some snapshots of what the early church looked like in this concept of koinonia that should, even in koinonia, that distinguished the church in a Jewish culture it distinguished the church from the others around them. They looked at them and they said, man, there is something different about those people who follow Jesus that, yeah, we crucified. So turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be spending a little bit of time in a couple of passages. And um, yeah, okay. Acts chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 42 and read to the end of the chapter. I'm reading from the NIV. <clears throat> they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of prayer, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done among were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. <laughs> Now, I, I'm going to point something out here that when you're reading your English version, you're not going to be able to see. But if you had the Greek in front of you, you would be able to see it. There are two words here that are used a total of seven times in this passage. You may see it translated in your Bible with the English word and. These are simply connectives. The two words are de and te. And what they do is, is they simply take concepts or small events, and they link them one to another. Um, in this passage, we see seven, and I'm going to call them snapshots of the early church. It, it's, th this is a highly unusual concentration of these words because I believe in the very beginning of Acts, just after 3,000 souls were saved, Luke's purpose is to give us seven snapshots of what the early church actually looked like. Now, I'm not going to get into all seven. I'm going to focus on just one of them that we're going to see repeated here. The first thing I want to do before I even get into that, I want us to take note of a word that's used in the very beginning. Seven snapshots. But in the very first one, the very first verb is they devoted themselves to. That means they continued doing this steadfastly, wholeheartedly, fervently. They gave themselves to it. That's what this word means. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were the keepers of the gospel. They were the ones who witnessed all of Jesus' uh, life ministry. You could not be an apostle, or at least one of the 12 apostles, that is. I believe there were other apostles, but the 12 were specifically defined by witnessing Jesus' life ministry. And now they, as a result, were the keepers, if you will, of that truth the protectors of it, 
so that no error would ever get into that. It is commonly said that a disciple of a teacher memorized generally about 60% of what their master said. And so there was a way that Jesus had to teach. And I'm going to suggest to you that much of what we read in the Gospels, Jesus taught actually many times, not just once. But his disciples remembered these things. Generally, about 60% they would actually memorize verbatim. So the people devoted themselves to what the apostles were teaching because these were the very words of Jesus that they were teaching. The second thing that they devoted themselves to was the fellowship. Now, it's interesting that it doesn't say they devoted themselves to fellowship because this word comes with the definite article, the, the fellowship. And we need us to understand that they are not devoting themselves to a concept. They are devoting themselves to a people, the fellowship. Church, you and I are the fellowship. In other words, we're the body of Christ who have so much in common. And actually, the word common, which is at the, the, the root word for koinonia, is found a little bit later here. And it says, all the, uh, give me a, one second. Yeah, here we go. Um, verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Everything in common. We're going to look, we're going to come back at that, but I want us to see as the fellowship, as the koinonia, we have everything in common. What does that even mean? But that is how we are defined. We have everything in common. We are devoted to one another as a result. I want us to see something here. And I'm going to touch on this in two more weeks when we're talking about unity in the body of Christ. And that unity, church, is, is much more than just a local body. It's important that there be unity in the local body, but we're going to be looking at also unity in the greater body of Christ. Let me just preface what I'm about to say with this. In the New Testament, you will find the word ecclesia, church, used in three different ways. Number one, you'll see it used as the universal church. And sometimes it's not just the church everywhere throughout the world, but it's cross-generational throughout the ages. The second way in which this word is used is used to refer to the city church, the church at Jerusalem, the church at Antioch, the church at Ephesus. And I would venture to say that there were many local churches in that city church. The third way in which this word ecclesia or church is used is used to refer to the local church. But can I say to you, it's rarely used that way. It is by far and large used to refer to the city church. Local churches interconnected with one another in a city. When you come across a province like Asia or Cilicia or Cappadocia, it will talk about the churches in those provinces because those provinces are made up of many cities. The focus, and and I'm going to, and I want you to be good Bereans. When Paul went to Berea, he preached the word, and it says this in Acts 17 that they studied the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying 
was indeed true. And I want you to do this. You have two weeks to do it. I'm going to tell you this. Paul uses this word ecclesia, excuse me. Luke uses this word ecclesia. There's only a few times in which he uses it to refer to the large body of Christ. Every other time, it has to do with the city church. And I would even venture to say this, and this is how I'm going to challenge you to look this up. He never uses it for the local church. He never uses it for the local church. Now, it's possible that in the really small church, small cities or towns, there was one local church, but there were many of them that there were hundreds, if not thousands. And Paul then says, this is Paul, greet the church that meets at Aquila and Priscilla. Greet the church that meets at Nymphas and things such as this. But that's only a handful of times. I'm going to suggest to you this, and I'm going to, you're going to, I'm going to make my point in a moment that Paul's use of this word ecclesia, though we don't see it in this passage, we see it uh, well over a dozen to two dozen times in Luke, he almost always uses it to refer to the city church. A few times to the church universal, but I'm going to suggest to you never for just a single local church. So here's my point. When we're talking about the fellowship, Luke's heart is for you to have a picture of the city church, the fellowship. Now, Luke does have a phrase that I believe generally is inclined to be understood as the local church, and it's this word. The Greek is kat oikos, and it's translated each home or every home. In the NIV, it's house to house. And that is a reference, I believe, to the local church and not just to a Christian home. We actually see that phrase in verse 46. Do you know what they did in that home? They ate meals together and they worshiped God together. And I'm going to suggest you see, this is, this is a local church. This is what the thousands of people, 3,000 so far are saved in chapter 4, we read that two more thousand, now we're talking about a church of over 5,000. That's the city church in Jerusalem. That is the fellowship, okay, that many of them met in homes. In Acts 12, gentlemen, we looked at Peter when he was set free. The angel came in, set him free from prison, and he walked out a free man. And where did he go? He went to Mary's, the mother of John Mark. And why? Because no doubt he knew that the church that met in her home was meeting there. I'm telling you this because we need to lift our eyes. When we're talking about the fellowship and having things in common, it's more than the people right here this morning. Luke's intention is for the church to see the city church, the bigger church. Now, in America, cities run together, so it's a little bit hard to grasp that. Additionally, there are many uh, denominations, and, and I'm not opposed to denominations, but the problem is denominations tend to build walls between local churches, and we don't see those walls anywhere in the New Testament. The church was interconnected as the fellowship. So when we're reading through this, I want you to see this interconnectedness in their homes, house to house, but we need to see it in the city as well. This is the city. All the believers in the city had everything in common, not just on the local church level. And I think many churches do very well. Powerline, I think you do so well 
as you're interconnected with one another as a local body of Christ seeking to meet one another's needs. And we're going to look at a few more things that they had in common. But how are we doing in our connectedness on a city level? We're going to be talking more about that in two weeks and probably even beyond that. But Luke's purpose in the book of Acts is to give you that city church perspective. All right? So as we're looking at this, it says here that, verse 44, and they had everything in common. Look at verse 45. Selling their possessions and goods. I lost myself there. Here we go. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Let's turn to chapter 4. I want us to see. This comes up again a little bit more in detail, but in chapter 4, verse 32, it says all the believers were one in mind and heart. So before he gets into the next few verses, he wants us to realize that these people were one in mind and heart. They had the same attitude, Philippians chapter 2. They were were, uh, in one mind and in one love. They had the same attitude. They had this concept of koinonia, and they not only got it, but they were living it out. So how did they do that? He goes on to say, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Does that not strike you a little odd? Because we are a people, especially in Western, uh, the Western world, in America, for example, we just we have this concept of possessions. And so we put up our six-foot privacy fences. Why? Because this is my property and I want privacy. This is mine. This is mine. And the church, they, they just didn't have that mentality. They had this mentality that said, what is mine is yours. We're stewards. Church, you're stewards of everything that God gives you. But our goal is not just to meet the needs of our family, but to see beyond our home's four walls, to see the needs of those around us in our local church, and then to see the needs of those around us outside of our local church to the city church level. And this is where the family, this is where we have things in common. And so the early church, they had this attitude, this mindset, what I own I'm going to take good care of it, but I'm going to look for every opportunity I can to share it with other people. Every opportunity I can. That they're, they're not, their goal isn't to try and build up as much wealth as they can. Now, I'm not opposed to saving. I'm not opposed to giving your children an inheritance. These are actually biblical concepts we find in Proverbs. But is that keeping you from having the mindset that we're reading here, they did not consider what, let me just put, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. That's just not the wording and the phrasing that they used. They had the different mindset, but they shared everything they had. With their With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. 
This is just how they lived. They shared everything. When there was a need, they sought to meet that need. This is the picture that we are getting of the early church. This is the mindset. I remember when in 1967, so I was six years old, so you know, my dad had just purchased a new vehicle. Well, it was new for us. I don't know how many miles were on it, but it was a red Chevy station wagon. And we took that V8 station wagon across the United States. My dad was an English teacher, so <clears throat> excuse me, he got two months off during the summertime. Many of those summers, he worked sun, summer school, but this particular one in 1967, he did not. And for two months, or just about, as a family, we traveled around the United States. We went to 27 states. We saw Yellowstone National Park. We saw the Grand Canyon. We saw, um, well, name some other things. Well, uh, I'm not, I think we did see Niagara Falls. I think we did go up there. We saw Sequoia National Park in California. Sequoia Redwoods. I can still remember this. You see, in Se the, the Sequoias are a type of redwood, but they're huge. They can reach 350 feet tall, okay? Our ceiling is 10, so 35 of these, Okay? And what was so cool, and we actually did this, we're driving down a road and we're heading right for one of these trees. Not to worry, there was a road right through the middle of it and we drove right through the middle of the redwood tree. How awesome is that? Just hoping that there's not another car on the other side trying to do the same thing, right? Because it was, it was only one way. But it was, it was huge. And they had this thing carved out so that cars could go through. And here's, here's what I, <coughs> excuse me, here's what I learned. Not only are they, can they reach 350 feet tall, but they're generally actually very close to one another. And if you were to look underground at their root system, a huge tree like that, wouldn't you expect a taproot that goes like 100 or more feet into the ground? Sequoia redwoods do not have a taproot. What? They actually don't have a root system that goes below about 10 feet. Everything, many of the shorter ones are about six feet, but the taller ones closer to 10 or 12 feet. And their roots are only about an inch or so thick, but they will go out about 80 to 100 feet. And what happens when they reach out this way is that there's another redwood who's doing the same and their roots become intertwined with one another. And so intertwined are these roots that when Strong winds, storms, hurricanes even blow through the redwoods. As huge as they are, they don't topple down because if you're going to topple one redwood, you're going to have to topple an entire system of redwoods. Good luck with that, okay? And it's just not going to happen. You see, this is a picture of the koinonia, the fellowship in the body of Christ. Now, can I say, we could use other illustrations about us personally going deep with God, but I'm using this to give an illustration of how wide we branch out and how interconnected our roots are with one another so that when one starts falling, we're there to help them up. I use the term foxhole brother. 
And this concept is that we're in a battle, and if we're not careful, we can get hit, because that's just the nature of battles, right? But when you're a foxhole brother with someone, you are in that hole, and you are there, you have each other's back. You do not leave him injured on the field. You're his foxhole brother. You're going to protect him. You're going to do whatever you can, risk your life if necessary, to keep that foxhole brother or sister alive. And that is who we are, church. We are interconnected, and we help and minister to one another. We encourage one another. We, 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 we're, we don't, we're not so quick to find the, the faults and the criticism. We are a people who seek to bring life. I'm not saying that there's never a time in which because someone has offended us, we go to them, show them their fault, and help them understand what has happened. I'm not saying we don't do that, but our focus is to build one another up. Our focus is as that foxhole brother to keep you alive to the very end. We sacrifice, no matter how high the price, for one another. And it's not just on the local church level. It is on the city church level. I, I, we need to make sure we get this. We are interconnected with the body of Christ. So we are foxhole brothers. Let, let me just tell you how powerful this is. At the end of chapter 2, verse 46... After that picture of their togetherness, their koinonia, getting together in the temple where they would probably hear the apostles teaching, there were not a multiplicity of elders in the city at that point. So I don't know exactly you know, how they managed their home fellowships, but in them, they too were together and had all things in common. Verse 47 says, and the Lord added to their number daily. The Lord did this daily, those who were being saved. When you look at chapter 6, we see, we see another picture. Here in chapter 6, this is now the third picture, chapter 2, chapter 4, and now chapter 6, here is another picture of Koinonia. By the way, before I mention this, it is amazing. Luke, in chapter 1, verse 8, tells us, I believe, the theme of his entire book of Acts. And that is that they are going to become empowered witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to be my witnesses, he tells them. And so the, the entire book of Acts is how the church was a witness to the communities around them and beyond. And in the first six chapters... This is his, the whole book is, but in the first six chapters, we see three pictures of koinonia interspersed with this. And the rest of the books, its sole focus is evangelism. It is the outpouring of the Spirit. Now, mentioning this, because of all, of anything that Luke could have used to intermesh, intertwine with this theme of evangelism and the outpouring of the Spirit, he chose this concept of koinonia. And in chapter 6, we have another picture of it. In this chapter, there are Grecian Jews who, uh, excuse me, widows who are Christians, 
but they are being overlooked when it came to their daily needs being met. And the church had really taken it upon themselves to meet the needs of the widows. But the Grecian widows were being overlooked. This was brought to their attention, and the apostles had a plan, and they set seven people in to be able to administer to this new program, if you will, of meeting the needs, not just of the Hebrew widows, but of the Grecian widows. So effective was this, so impactful was this, that those who were outside of the church, they saw it. And it says in verse 7, after it says that they, they released them to do this, it says, so, that is, as a result of what happened in verses 1 through 6, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The, the, the Jews who did not know Jesus Christ, they're looking on to the church, and they're seeing something of this koinonia and this fellowship, this sharing with one another, that in their Jewish communities, that's, what, that's part of what their role was. Their part of their role was to minister to the poor, and now they're looking at the church, and they're thinking, man, they've got it like all together. They really take this seriously. And the church became a picture of the love of Jesus Christ. So powerful was this picture, so impactful, that now, and, and it's the only place in all of Acts, this is said, now priests, those rooted in the Old Testament who were, I'm sure were so convinced that Jesus was a false prophet, now begin to step back and say, wait, wait a second. This is amazing what we're seeing. We should investigate the scriptures more. And I can guarantee you those priests started looking at the Old Testament and they began to see Jesus now because they had a picture of Jesus. And now that, that challenged them, they're looking back through the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. Wow. We, we crucified the Messiah. And the Bible says that the word of God spread rapidly. Even many priests became obedient to the faith. That's how powerful the picture of the church was, having everything in common, living in this fellowship. It is a powerful testimony to the world. But it is not about me and how wonderfully I'm loving. Can, can I just take you back to chapter 6? Just one little sentence here. It says in verse 33, and much grace was upon them all. Church, do you know why the church shined Jesus so much? Because the grace of God was so heavy upon them, working through them. It was powerful. It was a testimony. It was a shining light. Father, thank you for the truths that, that we're just seeing, not only through your word, but testimonies of these truths of koinonia, the togetherness, the having all things in common, the sharing, the loving, the sacrifice. Because Jesus, this is who you are. This is the example you gave us in the cross and in your life. So Father, I, I ask, would you help us 
to be that redwood that stands next to another, that intertwines our roots with others, that supports and nourishes. And would you do this, Father, and bring greater love, greater stability, and yes, even a greater picture of Jesus to this world. And Lord, I do pray this, and may much grace be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.